Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Open it up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And, uh, and let me just kind of catch you up real quick and tell you where we're at because I really want to get into this morning's message. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I'll tell you right bef- uh, even before we, we look at scripture, I know that this morning's message I'm preaching to the choir if for no other reason you're sitting here in church this morning. Uh, but, but it's important that we bring these teachings and these messages even to those faithful to church attendance and church involvement because uh, the Bible is really clear about the deception and about the pull, the undercurrent, the drift that's already happening in the last days here and will continue to happen and will become stronger and stronger. So we're going to look at a bunch of scripture today. I, I'm going to, my goal is to primarily, once we get this set up, I'm going to primarily try and let scripture teach you this morning. And I'll add some little nuances or just some helpful things to open your eyes, but I'm going to let scripture do the talking this morning. Uh, and it's a really important topic, but we're in our, this is our final message in this whole series that we've entitled life doesn't have to be scary. And we've acknowledged every single, every single study, every single component, uh, there are life overall, and there are parts of life that are really scary. And we, we try to kind of live a little detached from that because it's, it's just difficult to live in that awareness all the time. But we think about, and we're looking at the fact that life is scary and all of these different components are scary. And so today we're going to talk about the final message and the final message is church doesn't have to be scary. And we started in John chapter 16, verse 33. It's been a theme verse that we've carried with us the whole time. And it reads this way. These things I have spoken to you, this is Jesus talking, that in me, and, and that, there's the key to the whole, to everything else he's going to say in a relationship with me, not, not just in an association, not just the fact that I got saved and that's kind of as far as I go. But he says, when you're in a relationship with me, when this is an ongoing life on life with a living Lord and Savior, he says, you may have peace. And the word peace there is the Greek word irene, and it means you, you can have a secure, safe, prosperous, happy life, even in the middle of a world that is going nuts. And we know that because that's what Jesus did. You don't read anything in the gospel, and he was confronted with all kinds of stuff. You never read where Jesus was panicked, where he's you know in fetal position in the corner, or he's crying and begging his father. You never read that. Jesus is just steady as she she goes. He's not in denial, and and he's not this ferocious authoritarian that's reacting against stuff. Jesus is responding with a calmness, with a confidence, with a a balanced uh, level of thinking, kingdom wisdom, and he's responding every single time. He goes on and he says, now in the world, you will have tribulation. And we read that, we're like, you know, that's right. Because we've all experienced that. You're not going to get, you know, through this life without having a whole bunch of bumps and bruises. And it's getting more and more uh, dangerous in that way. He goes on, he says, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And the term be of good cheer, that's not just mean, ah, just be happy, you know, kind of a kuna matata. That's not what it's talking about. 
Be of good cheer means that you can remain in a high level of confidence and a high level of courage to face whatever comes down the pipe. And he goes on and he says, and in doing so, you will be like Jesus. You can overcome the world. And the, world, uh, the word overcome literally means not to run away from, not to, not to skirt around, but to face every challenge with courage and confidence and to be victorious, successful in overcoming them. And so we find that even though that life is scary and the New Testament's really upfront about that, in fact, so upfront that a lot of Christians don't like to really read it at face value because it, it doesn't pull any punches about what we're facing now and what, what uh, is going to be coming as we get deeper into the last days. But it says, if you stay in a close relationship with Jesus, you can live your life in a constant state of peace, in a constant state of confidence and courage, that will allow you to overcome and to meet and, and to, uh, to, to move through every challenge through the victory that Jesus has already achieved and what he promises that he'll pass on to our life. Now that's legitimate scripture. And by the way, that's the reason why any Christian came to God in the first place. You may not have thought about it in everyday life. Maybe you were taught that Christianity is basically, you know, spiritual or kind of a religious or an inspiration, a feeling kind of a thing, and it really kind of gets boots on the ground once we get to heaven. But you'll find lots of scriptures in the Bible that will speak to the contrary, that the life of the Christian was supposed to be victorious right here right now, just like Jesus demonstrated, that we weren't supposed to be afraid, we're supposed to move through every challenge. Now, as a pastor, I'd love to start this study. Uh, church doesn't have to be scary. I'd love to start it with a question like, who thinks that church is scary anyway? Like, where'd you even get that question from? But the problem is I grew up in church. And I know church can be a really scary place. And, and, I, and I'm, there's a lot of reasons we can talk about it from strange teachings and practices we don't understand and, and people that, you know, kind of are all over the spectrum in their passion and their, uh, their discipline and their demonstration and, and what their interpretation of Scripture. And it's just this wide variety, this wide diversity and collection of people. And, and I know that it can be a really scary, strange place for some people. But I want to kind of categorize it and look at it from a different way this morning, not marginalizing any experience that you might have had. If you came here and you got hurt, if you have places that, you know, that just stuff really, really bad, really, really, really ugly happened and they've scarred your life. I'm not marginalizing any of that. I'm not minimizing it. But I want to kind of put a broad category and help us to walk through some principal concepts in the Bible that will get us to a place where we can start looking at scripture and understand what God God's intent and what we really can experience uh, in the life of a church. So, so the first thing I think that has to do with is, I, I think it's the idea of church. And when I say the idea of church, I'm not talking about our ideas individually or collectively, but what Jesus described and intended, and that would be, this would be a group of people that was loving, that was kind, that was God-fearing, that, that had a devotion both to the Lord and to one another, and they were just going to function as one big spiritual family. Now, that certainly is God's intent, and we'll read a couple of scriptures about that today. Uh, but that's the idea. And, and so here we come and we plug in thinking this is what church is going to be like. And the, the reality of church ends up being we recognize that we've stepped into a community of imperfect, uh, 
oftentimes bruised, sometimes broken people that are all on this journey trying to, to experience the Lord's healing and the Lord's renewal and then the growth and the maturity in a relationship with Christ so they could be everything that he wants them to be. And by the way, all of us, that's our qualifications as we step in. And because of that, we have the idea of church then we have the reality of what church really is. It's more like a hospital than it is, you know, this wonderful, warm country club of successful Christians. And so the experience of church ends up where stuff happens. It just does. And, and when it happens, people who thought they were going to find love and support at times, maybe oftentimes, maybe horrendous times, experience disappointment and disillusion, betrayal, hurt. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about our church, by the way. This is other churches that I've heard about, uh, read articles about them. No, that, that's not true. This is our church too, right? It's not our heart. Definitely not what we're, we're striving for as individuals, as a community of believers. We've set ourselves this mantra of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that we're going to be a people that demonstrates a confirmation that God loves all of us undyingly, unceasingly. Even when we're unfaithful, God will be faithful. We, we want to live that out. We want to live in that reality. We want to demonstrate that reality to people, that we have a God who renews uh, hope in our life all the time. And when I say hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. We defined it as the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, LPs, which means it's a snapshot, a picture of the future God wants for you. And, and we look at it, we're like, wow, 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 really? And so we build a frame around that and say, that's what God wants me to have. That's what he promises me. He's going to help me to work towards. And so I'm going to set that as my goal. Now, if you don't believe that, then challenge yourself in scripture because you're all doing it with eternity. Never been to heaven, but you think you're gonna go to this wonderful place and it's like debt free and all expenses are paid for and it's the resort of your life. And by the way, if you think that, you are grossly wrong because you're underestimating. It is gonna blow your mind. So much so that Ephesians chapter one says that we'll never tap out. We'll get there and we'll go for, I don't know, who knows, 10,000 years and just about the time that we're starting to get used to it and we're like, man, this is really good. God's like, you like that, huh? Watch this. And he's gonna pull back a veil and open up a whole nother vault of his goodness and his grace. Ephesians 1 says this is gonna happen for, for the rest of eternity. No reruns, no boring, no stale, no, hey, what else you got? You know, we've already done all this stuff. Nope, never happened in heaven. And see, we believe that that's our hope. That's our picture of our future to the point that we've given our whole life to him. And so we wanna be a people that helps people to renew their hope. And then we want people's faith in Christ to come alive, not religious inspiration, although that could be part of it, but we want their confidence in the fact that Jesus is alive and he's working on the earth today, as Pastor Spencer said, same yesterday, today, as he was in the past and he will be forever. And we, we, want, we want to know that we can put confidence when the Bible says something. We can put confidence as that as an inarguable, unalterable word of God and we can put our confidence in that and we've done a whole series I talked about the contract, the covenant that God signed so that it, for no other reason so that we can be so, so at peace and so confident that his word is dependable that we'll step out. And, and so th this is who we're striving to be. But here's the reality. We're all still in process of that. 
We are. We're, we're still growing into it. Not any one of us is perfect yet, which means stuff is going to happen here too. But, but here's what I'm going to propose. And again, I'm not marginalizing anybody's past, but here's what I'm going to propose. If you think about it from a Bible perspective, the fact that we step into a church that is filled with imperfect people is one of the biggest reasons why church doesn't have to be scary. Because we don't have to put on this front Right? We don't have to come and, and try to act like we're perfect and, and try to you know, just keep it together long enough for service to be over. And then once we get in the car, we can let it all hang out again. And just you know, and we don't have to do that. In fact, it's a little bit comforting from a biblical perspective to be in a group of people and someone says, man, I'm all jacked up. And you're like, me too. <laughs> Welcome to the club of people that are imperfect. But here's the turning point. It's not just the lonely hearts or the broken people club. It's a group of people that every single one of us have imperfections. Every single one of us have places we're still growing. Not any one of us can stand up and say, I got this. Man, I figured it all out. If you do, then you've got an area called pride in your life that says you don't. And so it's very freeing to know that we're in a group of people that we're all acknowledging we were desperate for a rescuer, desperate for a savior, desperate for something that's going to put a solid foundation under our life and allow us to find the confidence and the courage that we're scrambling for without him and we're doing it unsuccessfully because the world keeps changing and twisting and moving faster and the problems keep coming and we can't possibly figure them all out. But we have this wonderful Savior who, by the way, promises us, if you step in a relationship with me, you won't stay in that imperfection. But I'll help you to keep moving through it and eventually past it. And I'll make sure that you experience what John 10.10 calls life to your fullest potential. In the middle of a world that is going crazy, I will help you to experience the victory that Jesus acquired for you, the, prom the Bible promises, and you'll be like this shining light in the middle of a world that's getting darker and darker. That's just not a neat little cliche that we use to encourage each other to come on now, live right, because people are watching. That's a legitimate reality of a Christian. And this is what we've been talking about here. We don't have to be afraid because God has made promises and God has made provision that if we'll step into them, we'll watch uh, the, our life begin to change. Uh, I've said it a couple of times before, but I heard, I don't even remember who I heard it from, but I heard this amazing quote one time that one of the greatest things about God is that he uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I don't know how he does that. I don't know why he does that. If you're going to build the most magnificent living building that's ever been built on the face of the earth that mankind has ever seen, why would you go to the refuse pile and grab scraps? Why wouldn't you order pristine, brand new material to do that? But God is the great redeemer. It's the great redeemer. And when we understand that, that's powerful for us, powerful for us. But, but can I also put it in a different light? When we really understand that that's normal. That's everyday Christian life. We show up on Sundays and some weeks have been harder than others and some weeks have brought disastrous news and setbacks and we, you know, we, feel, we feel betrayed, we feel hurt, we feel broken, but we come to a place where healing we come to a place where encouragement's going to be there. We come to a place where they can refocus us and we walk out, you know, feeling inflated again, feeling confident again, not just by the fellowship of people 
who are walking together and doing life with us, but, but by the fellowship of a living Savior who promises that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Now, th- this is where Scripture begins to kick in because these are the kinds of forethoughts, the foreshadowings that Jesus had in his mind when he stood on a hill with 12 other guys. It was all by himself, and he said, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a church. When I build this church, the very forces of hell, all of the evil that is lurking around in the world, if it intensifies and focuses, it will not be able to stop this church from moving forward. Well, when we say church, we might think of a building, we might think of an organization, we might think of some humanitarian, you know, charitable group that, that, that does wonderful things for people. And by the way, all of those things count, they're all part of it. But when Jesus said the word church, it wasn't a familiar or a religious term to the disciples, it's the Greek word ekklesia, and it just meant an assembly of people, people that were called out of just the normal, you know, moving crowd, and they were called out to assemble together for a specific purpose to accomplish a specific thing. And, and so this would have been town hall meetings. This would have been special committees or special groups that had either volunteered or been sequestered to come. And they were called out of their ordinary everyday routines of life to say, we need you to come. We're going to talk about this. We're going to strategize and we're going to set a plan to move that forward. It, it, it was used at times for political parties. It was used at times for humanitarian efforts. All those things are, are important. But Jesus uses it for a totally different reason here. And he says, I'm going to call a group of people together and their primary purpose is going to be to rally around the Messiah, the living Savior, and the victory that he's winning for the world. And they're going to begin to shine and show the world that God is alive and God wants to rescue people. And and as they begin to do that, as you begin to read the explanations, even in the foreshadows from the Old Testament, but certainly when we get into the New Testament, we find out that the church is not a building at all. The church is not an organization at all. It has organizational components. It it often meets in a building, but it's not any of those things. A church is is a spiritual family that has come together and realized how desperate they are for the Lord because they love him, because they so appreciate him, but because they need him. And a church is, is, a, is, is a group of people that comes together and as they're building relationship and trust equity, little by little, they peel the masks off and they feel completely comfortable and confident just to be real and to be vulnerable and to be honest. And that vulnerability and that honesty is met with encouragement, is met with love and acceptance, and is met with God's power and God's word that can begin to bring them through. That's how the Bible describes this, following Jesus, advancing his kingdom, demonstrating what it's like to be in a relationship with God Almighty and to be part of a spiritual family. That's what the church was all about. In fact, listen to Psalm chapter 133. This was a foreshadow of what God's people would look like reading from the New Living Translation, it says, how wonderful and and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, by the way, talking about the spiritual family context, when they live together in harmony, in harmony, now not perfection, but in harmony, right? We're, We're learning to do life together. We're learning to think about other people and how it's going to affect their lives, not just be so self centered and consumer driven and isolated. It's not just about what we like, 
It's about what other people are receiving and how we can contribute to that as well. And so he says, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers dwell, live together in harmony. He said, because or for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the borders of his robe. If you were reading from an Old Testament perspective, that would have painted such a vivid picture of the the priest of God that had this oil poured over his head in front of the congregation and the oil was representative and also an initiation of a releasing of God's power and watching God's power start at the top of his head and roll all the way down to his beard and then finally all the way down to his robe all the way till it got down on his sandals and, and just puddled up on the floor. That was a representation of how God will flow in the life of a group of people that comes together to say, listen, I'm, I'm part of a family and we're all in this together. We're gonna trust the Lord. And God will start from, a, from his power and, and understanding in the Bible. He will start flowing that and releasing that from the top and it won't stop till it goes all the way down and puddles around the floor to people that are just visiting and stepping in thinking, what in the world is that? I've never experienced anything like this before. And that's the whole point of this. But he's not finished. He goes on and he says, uh, he says, uh, and this harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has has promised his blessing, even life everlasting. And so he's saying it's not just a a spiritual divine uh, power that comes on and infuses and inflates our life, but he said there's also a refreshing. It's also from the outside in where we just feel washed and we feel refreshed. Some of you may have experienced that. You come into a church service and you just feel so beat up and dry and dusty, but by the time you walk out, you may not be able to pinpoint why, you just feel better. And there's a washing that happens, a refreshing that happens. And he says, and in those kinds of environments where the spirit of God is moving and there's a fellowship, a warm refreshing that's happening in those kind of environments, he says, that's where you're going to find the Lord releasing his blessings. Now listen to this, even to the point of life everlasting. Here's the distinction. You can come and you can experience a one-time blessing from the Lord. And you're like, oh my gosh, I needed that so bad. Oh, that was so wonderful. Or you can come and you can plug in and you can watch that happen every single time. It's this everlasting light that keeps bubbling and bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And, and those are the opportunities that he gives, but all that comes when the people of God come together. Let me give you another one in Ephesians chapter two, verse 19. He says, so now Gentiles, he's talking about at that point, there were the people of God, the Israelites, and then there was everybody else. He said, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. So you're not outside of the covenant of God. You're not outside of the heart of God where he said, these people are the apple of my eye. He says, now you're citizens along with all of God's holy people. In fact, you are members of God's family. And listen to me, please don't read that as a metaphor. Please don't read that as just, you know, some poetic description. When you were born into God's family, 
it, Jesus described it as in the same way you came through your mother's birth canal and you came into the world, when you were born spiritually, born again, you came through the birth canal of spiritual life and you literally were born into God's family. There was a time when on, your, the, on the day you were born where your heavenly father picked you up like a proud, proud papa and showed you around to all of the angels of heaven and said, look at my brand new baby boy. Look at my brand new baby girl. And the Bible says there's parties that happen, not just when people return to the Lord, but when they come to the Lord for the first time. There's celebrations of that. And so he says, stop thinking of yourself as disconnected, as foreigners, as someone who's kind of looking in, pressing your nose up against the glass, wishing somehow you could have an intimate relationship with God. He said, if you've accepted Jesus, you're in. You're in, you're a citizen of heaven and you're also a member of God's family. And then he goes on, he says, together we're his house, that's the church, built on the foundations that were laid by the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone, that's what framed the house in, squared it up and also kind of locked it all together. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him. I know this goes against consumer culture, I know this goes against, you know, this American idea that we're free to choose wherever we go. But if you study the New Testament, it couldn't be more clear that God has a particular house, a particular family that he would like to lead every Christian to. In, in the same way that babies are born and God gets to decide who the mom and dad is and who the siblings are, and there's this divine orchestration, Ephesians talks about that as well. Before the foundations of the world, God looked ahead in time, he knew your name, and he already mapped out your life and said, this is the life that, that, I, that I have for you. And that starts with where you're going to be born, even the ones that were born in a really bad situation, God doesn't want them to stay there. He wants to redeem that. The New Testament's super clear. But he goes on and he tells us that we're carefully joined together in him so that we can become a holy temple for the Lord. Now, this is where I want to turn a corner and we're going to be a little more specific and I'm going to try to pick up the pace here. Uh, But you have to let me, if you will, you have to let me pastor you this morning. And for those of you that have been with me for a while, I don't doubt that. But for those of you that are online, maybe for those of you a little newer, you have to let me pastor you this morning because quite frankly, the appetite of Western church is more pampering. I want to come so that I can be inspired. I want to come so that someone can open the Bible and tell me I'm not really as bad as I feel, that things aren't really as bad as they seem. And and don't get me wrong, the Bible always brings faith-filled solutions. But sometimes we have to take a look at some reality so that we can open our life and open ourselves up to the blessings of God. And this is where I said to you earlier, I really want scripture to talk to you this morning. And so I'm going to try to do as little preaching or even teaching and just let the scriptures do it. We'll jump from scripture to scripture, uh, but we're going to go in the New Living Translation so it should be pretty self-explanatory. Here's four benefits of being part of a church. And these benefits are why church doesn't have to be scary. Benefit number one, because the church helps us to grow spiritually. And, and that, kind of, you know, that, that kind of sounds a little bit redundant or obvious maybe to some people. It's like, man, that, that's kind of a, you know, that's a, that's a no-brainer. I don't know why you would start there. Because I think, I think we lose the reality of that. I think somehow in our uh, customized individual culture that we've got this idea 
that we can grow all by ourselves, just you and me, God. And church is kind of one of those options that if we can, that's great, but we don't have to. But I'm going to tell you that's contrary to the New Testament. Can, is your relationship with the Lord individual and perfect? Absolutely. Heart to heart, deep, personal. But there's nothing in the New Testament that even gives a little bit of leeway that says that your relationship was intended to be individual with the Lord only. It was being born as an individual so that you can be part of a family. This is all over the New Testament. And you just can't escape it. So I, I'm just going to press in here a little bit. The church helps us to grow spiritually. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, and then we'll jump to verse 46, says, Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church the, that day about 3,000 in all. And listen to this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Other translations say doctrine. That's actually the Greek word there. Uh, to the apostles' teaching. <clears throat> pardon me, um, and to fellowship, that's koinonia, that means doing life together, and, uh, and sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, that's what we would call communion now, and to prayer, jump to verse 46, and they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Now, I want you to grab that discussion, or that, that descriptive, you could, you could hear how together they were, you could hear how devoted they were, you could hear this this was their life. They wrapped it all up and it was all involving not just their relation and devotion with the Lord and their devotion to his word, but a devotion to connecting with one another and doing life together. Now, let, let me just for a moment, if I can, put that on the back burner and let me take you to Exodus chapter eight or chapter 20, verse eight. And Exodus chapter 20, verse eight is the fourth commandment. And the reason I want you to hear that, because the top three are all about how we acknowledge and how we formulate a relationship with, with God. He starts and says, number one, no other gods. Number two, absolutely no idols. Number three, be careful how you talk with me and about me. Don't use my name in vain ever. That's, by the way, not just cussing. That's also when you use his name casually or you use it in a joke. That, that's using his name inappropriately because this is a holy, sovereign, mighty God. And so he says, here's three things. First of all, no other gods. Don't put any idols up instead of me. And number three, be careful how you talk to me and how you talk with me. Number four on the list, right behind that, is where he picks up in verse number eight and says, remember to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You got six days a week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest. And some people say, see, whoa, 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 that's what I'm talking about right there. It's a day of rest. I have to re re relax. I have to replenish myself. I, I have to recreate or recreate. And I won't get any arguments from you there as long as you finish reading. He says, dedicated to the Lord your God. Now, let me tell you what's amazing. Again, I, I, I'm not... I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to put condemnation on anybody. If you're watching online, this is meant to be loving. I'm just trying to pastor. And here, here's the amazing thing is, when you look at the description of the first church, and that wasn't the first day of the first church when everybody's on the honeymoon, that was what life looked like for, a, for, for the, you know, the duration as they begin to grow. When you look at the first church compared to today's church, they were completely devoted to the word of God. 
completely committed to, 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 the, to the church, to gathering together, and to what we would call connect groups, to home groups. That was just not an option. These were the, these were the highest priorities to the point that sometimes they were doing it every day. I don't know how you get stuff done. But every single day, because they still had jobs and responsibilities, it's like not like those went away. They weren't living in a commune. But he said every single day they were doing this. Now compare that to here we are 2,000 years later with all of the Bible teaching and multiple translations of the word of God with commentaries and study books and everything else that helps us to understand. And yet Western culture at this point post-pandemic is maybe once or twice a month. Maybe. Maybe. And this is, listen, this is, not, this is a statistic nationally. This is what churches are facing is how do we pastor people when you can't get them to come to church more than once or twice a month? No time for devotions, no time for reading the word of God, real skittish and standoffish about connect groups. And by the way, I'm not throwing stones at any of this stuff. I'm just trying to point it out just to love you enough to pastor you. And I'll tell you why. Because when we get deeper in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, it begins to describe something that's very alarming and looks a lot like the way we're living today. It says when we get to the last days, the stakes are going to go up exponentially. And many, many Christians, without even understanding it, are just one degree at a time going to begin to casually and little by little begin to drift away to the point they won't even recognize they're doing it. But here's what the Bible describes as happening. First of all, they're losing their appetite for the Bible truth. They're losing their appetite for what does God actually say because they're becoming lovers themselves and lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Didn't say they didn't love God. It said that there's just an imbalance. It's more about me. It's more about my family. It's more about, well, I have to be my best. And you know, I, here's my life rhythms. And it's all about those things, not taking into account what God says. And here's the result of it. They'll end up not denying God, acting very religious. Not denying God, but these are the Bible's words, not mine. I'm paraphrasing. He says, they'll deny God's real authority and God's real power. And when they do that, not only does it put them at risk, it puts their whole family for generations at risk. Have you ever thought about the sin of Adam and Eve? God didn't say, hey, that forbidden tree right there, by the way, those apples are laced you know, with, with toxic chemicals. Those acids or apples are laced with cyanide. If you eat one, you're going to drop dead on the spot. He didn't say that. He said, in the day that you eat of that, you will die. And they tested him. And they took a bite and neither of them dropped dead, but something died in them immediately. Their trust and their respect for this almighty God died immediately. Their trust and their respect for one another died immediately. And right away we see them getting, uh, getting, um, uh, getting defensive and, and qualifying, rationalizing and blaming the other person. And here's the most amazing thing. If you fast forward, you really don't see the fruit of what they did or the result of what they did until the next generation. Next generation had the first murder ever committed on the earth. And see, we don't think about this, right? We're making these little tiny adjustments and compromises. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about being honorable followers of Christ and recognizing God said these things to help us. And we don't realize that we think we're living our best life now. And we don't think about it till we get to the next generation. And we think, what happened? Well, how, come, how come my kids don't? How, how, how come they're struggling in? 
And it, it's because the world's filled with struggles and the world's filled with drift. And we started the course. Again, no condemnation here, but it's so important. The warning so fits. And, I, and, and it just seems like as Christians, if we're not careful, we're, we're asleep about this. By the way, just so that I can feel a little better about bringing these things to you guys, um, this is my job. Let me read it to you, Ephesians chapter 4. It says, now these are gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, here, here goes, the pastors and the teachers. Those are like the gifts that just keep on giving and giving and giving and giving. He says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And they will continue to do this until we all come in such unity of our faith and the knowledge of God so that we will mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and the complete statue uh, standard of Christ. That's not perfection. It means that we're growing strong and straight. We're contributors to the kingdom, contributors to, to the communities around us, and we're doing it the way the Bible says we should do it. I'll read you one more. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gift. Use them well to serve one another. And he gives us a couple of examples. It's not an extensive list. You'll find that in Romans chapter 12. But he says, do you have a gift of speaking? Then speak as though God was speaking, uh, God himself was speaking through you. Give you a couple of practical examples like children's ministry, the teachers that are their next gen ministry, the teachers uh, being connect group leaders or connect group contributors joining and, and saying, hey, I got something in my journal this morning in my time with the Lord and, and speak as God gives you stuff, be speaking that. It goes on and says, do you have the gift of helping others? That would be like our guest services or that would be like, you know, our hands of grace ministry that brings meals to people that are in crisis or, you know, those of you that are handy with tools helping on one of our three campuses with facilities. He says, do it with all your strength and energy in the energy that God supplies because then... Everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus. All glory and power and for, to him forever and ever. Amen. Matthew 6.33 says something very interesting, and we, we can really target it and, and, and make it a, you know, a single-line principle, or we can let it expand and let it be an overriding principle that filters through everything. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will come rolling to you. Some scholars interpret that, put God's principles first and watch it calibrate the rest of your life. There are people that get out of high school, I can't wait, I gotta figure out something to do in my career and use my gifting so I can make a lot of money. And, and listen to me, I'm not saying that's bad. Maybe the Lord leads you that direction. But let me tell you what seems to be a more kingdom approach. Understand your giftings, calibrate them and dedicate them to the Lord and let the Lord begin to unfold. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Whatever you do, don't lean to your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. Put him first. And then it calibrates everything else. And the Bible says he'll direct your paths from there. And so these principles are all the way through the Bible. And they're part of us belonging uh, to a church. Let me give you another one. Our principle number two. The church helps us to get into alignment with God's will. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says, uh, Paul says, we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and, and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding because then you will know the way to live and you'll always, uh, you'll always uh, be able to please God and your lives will be, uh, your lives will, will, 
will produce every kind of good fruit all the while uh, you, all the while you will, I'm so sorry, I got to put my glasses on. My eyes are not focusing this morning. I apologize. There it is. All the while you'll grow as you learn to know God better and better. Here's Hebrews 10, chap, 10 uh, chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Well, that's just like a whole message right there. We, we, and you know, and I, we're, none of us are, are excluded from this. We read the promises of God. We write in a little encouraging note in a card to each other. You know, we say, boy, this is really important. We'll share it with somebody else to kind of help to focus them and champion them on. And then we turn around in our own it, it situations and we just don't believe that he's telling the truth. We want to, but we just don't. But over and over, the Bible says, don't think like that. Keep, grab your thoughts and pull them back. Say, God's faithful. But in addition, he goes on in verse 24. He says, let's also think of ways to motivate one another to act to, towards acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. This is direct, ties back to Exodus 20. Don't neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. Listen, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We didn't cover this on any of the Wednesday nights. Let me just put this as a little ad. You know, there's nothing in Bible prophecy, nothing in the eschatological timeline of events, and, and this is from almost every single uh, scholar's perspective. There's nothing in any of those things <clears throat> that says Jesus can't come back today. There's some big boulders we're looking at, because that, that's going to help us to know, okay, are, you know, is, is the big time clock, there's like five components at the end of time where the time clock starts and we can almost tell exactly where we are. One of them, once we know it starts, we, we can count seven years to the day and we know this is what's going to happen. But in this place we're living in now, there's absolutely nothing, not one little tiny twist that has to happen that Jesus can't come back right now. And the New Testament is full of stories to say we should pay attention because when he comes back, it, it'll literally be so fast that two people will be standing together and one person's gone and the other person's still standing. They're like, where, where'd he go? What, what happened? And that's not meant to scare us. It's meant to prepare us and help us to lean in and say, man, we wanna live in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's number three quickly and I'm bringing it to a close. Church helps us to safeguard our life from the enemy. I won't read it, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, it tells us we do have an enemy who prowls around our life all the time, and he's looking to see at what point and at what individual that he can just, he can just destroy and devour their life. And the Bible tells us stand firm against him and be strong in faith. You think, well, yeah, we want to do that, but how do we do that? Well, part of, of the way that God gives us, we already read Hebrews chapter 10 that says we're watching one another, but Galatians 6 says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome with sin, you who are godly, uh, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And we should be careful to, not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Verse number two, but share each other's burdens in this way. Obey the law of Christ. By the way, the law of Christ uh, is highlighted in Galatians, it, Galatians chapter five, the previous chapter. But it's also that one where Jesus was asked, tell me about what's the greatest law. And he says, well, I'll just give you two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Paul in Galatians is saying, you want to know how to absolutely like just connect the dots, hands on, live this out with your neighbor. He says, pay attention, watch, watch those people around you. Make sure they're not drifting. And if they are, he says, go grab them and say, hey, come here, come on back here. By the way, when it says when you see them overtaken into sin, it's not just talking about some deep moral failure. The word sin there is talking about just a moment of indiscretion. It's like you're not thinking straight. It's like when you get on the drift and you're just not seeing life right again, when you begin to see them even start to err and start to drift, he says, you who are godly, humbly and gently go and say, whoa, 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 what's going on? I I love you, man. I want you to stay in this thing with me because God's moving in our lives. And then verse 25, he goes on, he says, and let us not... uh, I'm sorry, in verse, verse, uh, verse nine, he says, and if you think you're too important to help somebody, he said, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. He's talking about our time and our effort. Yeah, but you don't understand. I got a busy life. Not, not so busy that eternity it is not on the line. Let me give you point number four and we'll close it right here. Point number four is that church prepares us to go to go out into the world. Jesus said in in both renditions of the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, that as we're born again, as we put ourselves in a family, that we're supposed to now go and we're supposed to bring this good news to to one another. But but when I think about the Great Commission, one of the things that focuses it for me is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're gonna be my witnesses to tell people about me everywhere, starting in Jerusalem, by the way, that's right where they were, so starting right in your own home, and then throughout Judea, that was the next circle, a couple of blocks away, and then in Samaria, and then no matter where you go. And, and, the, and the word witness is what grabs me because the word witness it is where we get the word martyr. And it doesn't mean you literally have to be killed for your faith. It means that you, you will stake your life on the truth that you know and you've experienced, and that you're willing to share that. But it paints this great picture of a witness that we still have around today. You go into any courtroom setting, any, any, uh, either a judge trial or a trial by jury, and one of the attorneys will call up a witness, and they'll stand there in most courts still, and raise their right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And the attorney will begin asking them questions. Now, if the attorney gets to a question they don't know, then they say, I I don't know. I didn't see that. I didn't experience that. I, I can't comment on that. But if the attorney asks them something that they experienced or they were eyewitness to or they know to be a fact, they are bound by the law to share that. And if they don't, that's considered a penalty. That's considered obstruction. If they say something different, that's considered perjury. And they can actually be held on charges for that. See, we understand that in our legal system, and especially if we were the one on trial, man, we want witnesses to show up. We want them to be honest. We want them to defend us. Man, just tell the truth. Just just say exactly what happened. We want that. We don't stop to think about that's exactly what God's asking and requiring of us. There will be moments when we will connect with people, some of them in the church, some of them outside the walls of the church. And the Holy Spirit will give you that moment and will whisper to you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be an apology. You don't have to have the answer to the world's problems. All I know is this is what God did for me. This is what God's doing for me now. This is what God has promised that he will continue to do for me. And you tell them the truth. And the amazing thing is, 
the Holy Spirit, who is the attorney, the Bible says that he's come to convince or convict people of their wrong thinking. The Holy Spirit will take your testimony and your testimony and your testimony and will begin building a case in people's life. So little by little, their mind will begin to change and they'll say, maybe there is something to this Christian thing after all. Maybe there is something to this Jesus thing. I wonder what our lives, our families, our communities would be like if every single one of us would commit and say, I'll do it. Lord, that's really not me. I'm not, not the guy who wants to go out there and talk to everybody all the time. I'm kind of an introvert and a little bit awkward, a little bit shy. But if you sequester me to the witness stand and I'm in that moment where truth is right in front of me, with God's help, I swear that I will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I will say, I, I don't know about all this stuff, but let me tell you what my experience has been. Let me tell you what I know that the Bible says. I can point to it right there. And this is what I'm banking my life on. And yeah, you're going to get people that'll walk away. They'll shake their head. Maybe they'll ridicule you. Maybe they'll laugh at what you say in the moment. But the point is, you're not the prosecuting attorney. That's not your job to win the case. You're not there to preach them or pressure them to believe anything. You're just there to be a witness, to be another individual that God calls as he's building a case in people's life, trying to beg them and convince them, please let me rescue you because eternity is coming quick, quick. Listen, this is why church doesn't have to be scary. We don't have to put on any facade. We can just be us. We're imperfect. We're learning. We're growing. We mess up sometimes and, and we forgive one another. But we have the power of God in us. We have the power of God working through us that together we can keep moving forward and we can help other people in the process to find the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is coming. That's just a fact but we can see it all around us and we want God to be on our side and we want God to use us to rescue others. Stand to your feet this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives and abides in us. Thank you for the fact that he's the teacher, Lord, that he's the one who breaks this down and anything that I said or didn't say that might have fuzzed the line up, Lord, then clarify that and make sure that everybody walks away hearing what you wanted them to hear. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this church, not just in this place, but all three of our campuses. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is is coming alive and becoming more and more real. Now, Lord, change us, wake us up, bring us back together, Lord, with, with a new level of strength and confidence and give us the courage and the confidence to live for you and also to reach out and share that with other people. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.